Hello, hello to all our listeners, and welcome to the Global Strain Podcast, where we talk about how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting global politics and our daily lives. And we're not coming to you from our regular studio, which we normally do. Instead, it's um, one of my favorite cafes uh, called Lola Was Here, which is in the Prenzlauerberg district of Berlin. So if you ever get a chance to come around, do check out Lola Was Here. Our guest today is Jessica Berlin, which is not her artistic name, as I've been told. (laughs) And I think she'll explain that a little bit. Jessica is a fellow of the Global Governance Futures Program, and she is part of the GGF 2035 cohort. And when she's not a fellow with GGF, Jessica is the founder and managing director of Construct, which is a strategy, advisory, and do tank where Jessica and her colleagues design and build innovative programs bridging the gap between business, technology, and sustainable development. I hope I've gotten that right so far. Uh, She's nodding, which is great. Now, we're not here to talk about Jessica's work uh, during her professional life. Instead, I invited her on today to talk about a quite different issue, the issue of dehumanization and empathy during coronavirus times. And the reason why I've invited her on is because I came across a talk you did, Jessica, which was, I believe, recorded in November 2018 with TEDx Talks. Um, And many of you may be familiar with TEDx, and this was specifically with TEDx Hamburg. And the title of your talk was Why Yes We Can Failed and How to Get It Right. Yes We Can being the uh, motto of the former U.S. President Barack Obama, and it was his motto since his Senate campaign in 2004. And I want to give you the floor, uh, Jessica, just to give our listeners a, a picture of the talk. What were what were the kind of highlights of that talk? Where where did that idea of dehumanization come about? And just to paint us a picture so we can delve into this issue. Sure. Thanks, Joel. It's a pleasure to be here. That talk that I gave in 2018 grew out of uh, I think on the simplest level, AFD, the Alternative für Deutschland entering the German Bundestag, and Donald Trump being elected to the White House in the previous years. Um, you know, in 2018, the transatlantic democratic space was looking pretty grim, let's say. And for me, as a German citizen and American citizen, a, a dual transatlantic citizen who also had lived in the UK, um, this was just a really difficult time to watch what we were doing to ourselves. And between then both my, my, personal, my personal experience of the situation um, as a transatlantic person, as well as, um, as a professional, as a political economist who's lived and worked around the world, across four continents in the areas of foreign policy, security, and international development, uh, I was really asking myself, how the hell did we get here? What went wrong? And in that, in that reflective space and and frustration, it it occurred to me that the answer was pretty simple when you broke it down. And on a certain level, it laid bare um, that that all these dynamics were not um, problems unto themselves, but they were simply um, symptoms of a basic issue where in our in our society, in our politics, and in our economic space, that we have marginalized and indeed dehumanized groups who after years, decades even, of, of marginalization, of reduced opportunities, of being misunderstood or overlooked, that they react. And, um, and so the, the talk that you mentioned paints a picture around 
how we do that, what does dehumanization mean, both on an everyday individual level as well as on a macro institutional level, and how do we do we combat it to improve both our societies and our policymaking? And during that talk, I remember you you were very open and honest about how uh, you know you called yourself out. You said, Jessica, you dehumanized these people. And just to give our audience a background, you were in Afghanistan. There was, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, big traffic. There was a car or truck that had, you know, skidded off the icy roads. And you had gone up to one of the uh, army officers who happened to be with the U.S. Army. Yeah, <laughs> I, I w wouldn't want to want to rehash the story. I mean, if, if, if folks are interested, they, they should watch the talk. Let's let's just say it kicks off with a funny story from my time in Afghanistan where I completely misinterpreted a situation with a group of Afghan men and and that it was a, a moment, a learning and teachable moment for me as well, where I saw even, even with all the best intentions and all the intercultural sensibility in the world, even I am also sometimes automatically dehumanizing others uh, without meaning to or without realizing it. And, you know, that, that, that funny story that um, could have ended badly and instead just, um, just held up a mirror to my face, you know, I think all of us, if we would think about it, have, have dozens of such stories uh, that we can draw from our daily lives. But, yeah, you know, I, I definitely think also if we're not, if we want to whether as policymakers or business leaders um, or even just citizens and individuals, we have to be able to look at ourselves critically uh, and understand our own behaviors before, you know, we can start looking at others critically and making recommendations. You know, you, you don't, uh, you can't be a backseat driver to, to change. And change starts first and foremost with yourself and, and you can only lead by example. And so that's getting a bit personal and, and telling a story where maybe, you know, I look like a bit of an ass. Hopefully not just to give people a laugh, but uh, to, to help them think and um, question times in their own lives when, when they maybe have done something similar to another other group. The reason why I wanted to pick up on this talk was because what you said in 2018, November 2018, still resonates very much today when we talk about how dehumanization is happening in our society today and how it's creeping into our institutions. You mentioned the election of uh, President Donald Trump. You mentioned the fracturing of the transatlantic relation, uh, relationship, uh, Brexit as well. So we're seeing this happening all across uh, Europe and, and, and across the, uh, the Atlantic. And Obviously, this didn't happen overnight, right? And one thing you also said was collective action is just as important as collective inaction because if you don't do anything, this is what happens. But what do you think could be done at the individual level? Because, you know, people say we need a more empathetic society. We need more empathetic organizations, etc., etc. But societies and organizations are composed or made up of individual people. But how do you how do you get to that when there are still so many people who are themselves marginalized that are maybe not, um, you know, people of color, POCs, but, you know, even they are the majority. Let's say, take Germany as an example. We do have an issue of white Germans who are socioeconomically not as well off as they would like to be or not as educated or are competing in a labor market where they know they're going to be replaced by robots or AI and so on. How do you, how do we get to them and say, hey, being empathetic is not just the right thing to do, it's a smart thing to do. So any change that 
that happens at the institutional level in a certain way has to happen at the individual level first. And when we're talking about empathy, uh, as I describe it in the talk, I think we're thinking about it in the wrong way. Right now, you know, if you ask most folks, they would regard empathy as, as a virtue, as some kind of moral trait, a soft power, soft skill, if you will. And, and I argue that empathy is actually something strategic and that what we need to, to learn um, and to practice is strategic empathy. Reco what, what do you mean by that? Uh, strategic empathy means taking the human and the lived experience of the person or the community you're engaging with, taking understanding them on a human level as your starting point, as your strategic starting point for any kind of decision-making or planning around that group. Um, you can show me all the uh, econometric analyses uh, and reports and research around a group and what they need, what they have, why they do or behave the way they do, but that tells you nothing if you're not in the first instance trying to understand their, their lived experience as people, as humans. And this strategic empathy, putting yourself in the shoes of the other, trying to understand where they're coming from, this informs, uh, this can and should inform all of your, your engagement and decision making along the way. Um, I mean, when you consider, to, to use the example you did, economically disadvantaged um, white people in Germany, which uh, often is just written off broadly as, oh yeah, the former East. Um, of course, it's not only that, but like, let's for argument's sake, look at that group in particular. You know, the, the Wende, the, the reunification, that was 30 years ago. And what's happened? You know, it's it's not enough now to to just complain and throw up one's hands and say, what's their problem? Um, why are they behaving or voting the way they are? But to think, like, what happened there? What happened in this community? What happened in this region? What happened in the individual lives of people who are now fed up um, and voting to voting basically to uh, to turn around the democratic trajectory um, of the of German democracy? That speaks to more than than a political or an economic frustration. That that speaks to a human frustration and experience. And when we talk about institutional reform um, or or innovation and uh, reform in policymaking space, if you don't have individuals working in government, working in policymaking um, and advisory institutions who understand this on an individual level, who have internalized that um, strategic empathy is it's not, as, as I say, uh, it's not just the right thing to do, but the smart thing to do, then, of course, the institutional culture will not change. And so this is where um, we need to be able to have these conversations around, around the lived experience of marginalized groups, not because it's politically correct, but because it's strategically necessary. I mean, so much of what you just said <laughs> resonates deeply with me, and it makes a lot of sense. And yet, you know... With benefit of hindsight, we can say, you know, to use your example uh, of when, when, when the wall came down in Germany and, uh, you know, there was a reunification, we still see that eastern, former eastern part of Germany is less well off and they give rise to much more nationalistic sentiments, the rise of the uh, alternative for Germany party, the uh, AfD, etc., etc. But yet we still see these traits across the world and, and let's use uh, the current um, 
global medical health emergency, right? The coronavirus pandemic. We've seen it being called the China virus by some people. And there's been reported like physical and verbal attacks on people of Asian descent and the rise of kind of anti-Asian sentiments because they're seen as the transmitters of this virus, which is not true because this virus does not, the virus doesn't care if you're Asian or if you're African or if you're European, it's simply there. And yet we see the lack of empathy or the lack of this kind of acceptance that, hey, we don't have to name call, hey, we don't have to castigate a certain group of people. Why is it that despite such like lessons learned from the past, we're still struggling to get this idea of strategic empathy into our policy creation, into our worldview, into our daily interaction? I mean, it's, it's a big question, but I, I wonder because it's an age-old question in a way. Yeah, it, it is a big question. And I think on a, on a basic level, the answer there is it's even simpler than strategic empathy. When when you see people in the news, whether they're politicians or just everyday folks on the street, blaming China for the virus, it's just bad information. It's ignorance. Um, it's ignorance being backed up by racist stereotypes. And when I see that, I think it's less an issue of people needing to be empathetic and thinking how, how racial stereotypes are hurtful. No, the people who at a political level are spreading those kinds of narratives, they know exactly what they're doing. It's a dog whistle and a distraction away from their own shortcomings, trying to blame another group for, um, for their own mismanagement of the crisis. That's on the one level. And then on the other level, it's, it speaks to our education system or the educations that, that people who believe something like that um, have received. It's just a great deal of ignorance even around the basic science of how, how a pandemic works and how vi this virus is transmitted. So um, if that kind of just that, that knowledge-based ignorance is being allowed to spread at the same time that um, racist, dehumanizing stereotypes are being spread around on top of it, it's, it's a recipe for, um, for what you described. So one thing uh, that I find interesting is the idea of educating people with with the correct kind of information and as you said strategic empathy being also um, useful not just as an exercise towards the person across from you but also for yourself to realize that this is also in your own interest in the long run right and uh, the idea of being able to step into the other person's shoes to kind of in German you say mitgefühl right to feel as the other person because ultimately we're not that different my pains my sorrows my tears my joys these are all universal emotions that everyone on this planet can can, can share at the same time I can't help but think you know now with with the realization that people who are, you know, groups of minority uh, within countries uh, were affected disproportionately by this pandemic. So if you look at, let's say, the U.S., which has the highest infectious rate and mortality rate from, from the coronavirus pandemic, it's been disproportionately um, the African-American community, the Latino community, uh, even the indigenous communities that have been hit. And it's not because of their ethnic background, but it's because of structural inequality that was there. And to educate the majority about these issues uh, and about the realities, their lived experiences, is one thing. At the same time, I've heard from many friends who are also, you know, um, people of color, say, we just don't have the energy if you ask us to teach 
the majority how we should be treated. We just can't deal with it. We don't have the energy because this is our lived experience. It's sucking energy out of us and we don't want to then sit there and say this is how we should be treated this is what is the right thing to do so how would you say how, how can we go about this you know like to to educate but not at the expense of people of color right uh, the, the pandemic gives us uh, in a weird way a perfect opportunity to to change the narrative on how we view uh, the marginalization um, and oppression of minority groups and underprivileged groups in our society, because this is a problem, infectious disease, a freaking global pandemic. This is a case where you can leave no one behind, not because it's wrong to leave someone behind, to leave a group behind, but because if you don't, guess what? That group that, that gets shoved to the side, overlooked, not taken care of, they will become the new epicenter for the disease in your country. So you need to take care of everyone if you want to get the outbreak under control, the pandemic under control. And that, that seems like a very obvious thing to say, but it opens the door to those who have a bit of, shall we say, policy imagination on, oh shit, what happens when we leave groups behind? in education, what happens when we leave people behind in other areas of healthcare. When we leave groups behind, we damage ourselves as a whole. And that is more vivid in this use case than in any other that we've encountered perhaps in the modern age, except, wait for it, climate change. Oh, if we don't all do this together, then we are all screwed anyway. And that on a, on a macro global crisis level is so obvious to us in this moment with the pandemic. It should now be obvious to us if it hasn't been for the last X decades um, on climate change, but it also brings it home on a domestic policy level around education, around combating fake news, um, xenophobia, economic disenfranchisement, all of these factors that maybe don't affect all of us in our daily lives and in our communities, when they affect a group of us, it slows all of us down, it harms all of us. And, and that, I think, would be, from a strategic empathy perspective, the new angle that we need to see. We need to take care of everyone. Everyone? Yes, everyone. And not just in the pandemic, but across the board. And at the end of the day, that's also not a new observation. Um, at its core, that's the whole idea behind a social democracy. And we haven't fulfilled the promise of social democracy yet. We don't yet take care of everyone as well as we should. And, and this crisis, it opens our eyes to that in a new way and hopefully also will create the, the space to, to change the conversation on how we, we take care of each other um, at a national and at a global level. I mean, right now we're working on it in, you know, in Europe and, and already you see the inequality in, in how countries are equipped to deal with this um, between northern um, or western Europe and uh, southern and eastern states. Well, guess what? If, um, if African countries, Middle Eastern countries, etc., other um, low-income, if low-income countries across the world are left to fend for themselves and get, quote-unquote, left behind, um, if we don't help everyone, we will all get, get kicked in the ass by this in the long term. It's interesting you said, you know, leave no one behind because walking through Berlin, you see this um, chalked on the floors, hashtag leave no one behind, or spray painted on walls, hashtag leave no one behind. 
And I want to ask whether you've seen in your experience any anything that gives you hope that this message is being picked up because you rightfully pointed out that, you know, we've seen this discrepancy within Europe itself, how Northern European countries were able to deal with the pandemic in a way better than Southern European countries, um, how Latin America is now the epicenter and what's happening there is just crazy to say the least. Uh, but is there anything you've come across where people, where you can say, okay, there is hope that there is this level of, you know, higher thinking, uh, more strategic thinking of, you know, or is there still, is it too early to say that there's anything because we're still reeling from all of this? Um, yeah, I'm just curious to hear what your thoughts. I wouldn't use the word optimistic. Well, you did say it's an opportunity. Yeah, it, it's an opportunity. Um, and uh, let's put it like this. Um, I would say the opportunity is there. I wouldn't say I am yet hopeful that we are going to seize the opportunity. Right now, in German, we'd say everyone's very much mit sich selbst beschäftigt, like everyone's dealing with themselves, preoccupied with themselves. Yeah, um, I haven't seen, and it's also understandable why not. I mean, uh, I, I haven't seen the conversation reach a macro level of taking a step back and saying, how can we systemically, even just on the level of the European Union, collaborate and deal with this together? But of course we haven't, because the EU, even on a on a good day, is like herding cats. So how is it supposed to work when everyone is running around like chickens with their heads cut off in, in their own national crisis management? But for the long term... What I would like to see come out of this is um, when the dust has settled somewhat for institutional frameworks to be put in place so that European-level crisis management is the order of the day, that we're designed to do this um, and to take care of each other. And um, at the national level, when you see the discrepancies in national response, I mean, that, that would be a topic for an entire <laughs> separate podcast. But, you know, there's a lot of factors in play here on the domestic political level and on a long-term you know, economic history level. But it shows the weaknesses in the heart of, of the EU right now that we need to invest in each other. Um, and this is where, you know, naturally a great deal of responsibility falls onto the wealthier European countries. You know, um, I'm a German taxpayer. I also don't like to see our tax funding go to countries whose fiscal management I don't trust. That, that I can say on a subjective citizen level, no, I don't like that. But objectively, we need to find ways to quote unquote spread the wealth, to use that horror <laughs> phrase for the, for the fiscal right. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, if the European Union is going to work, it will only work if we're willing to invest in each other. And yes, there need to be rules. And yes, those rules need to be upheld and there need to be consequences when, when those rules are broken. But I do believe that we are clever enough to create frameworks um, for this to work um, in the long term. And whether we're talking about managing a pandemic or we're talking about making sure that every European citizen has access to quality education, healthcare, and food on the table, that's it's the 21st century. We should be able to get this done. And... And when we say leave no one behind, whether it's sprayed on, on a park bench in, in Kreuzberg or on the floor of European Parliament, there, that needs to be backed up by a willingness to sacrifice and by a willingness to roll up sleeves to work and to compromise, regardless of which side of the table you're on.
we're almost at the end of our time, but I want to to leave with one final observation and bring it back to the initial topic of dehumanization and empathy. What this pandemic has shown us very clearly are the two sides of the spectrum. Throughout the past weeks and months, we've seen the negative sides of the pandemic, what it has done to communities, uh, to societies, how people have been labeled and blamed and, and you know, been abused, basically, throughout, throughout this time. So we've seen a very negative side of this. At the same time, we've seen acts of tremendous generosity, of caring, of support, whether it is between family members or neighbors, or whether it is people coming out to support uh, elderly people with their shopping or, you know, giving out meals to frontline workers. We've seen the good, the bad, the ugly of human nature. And hopefully, my hope is that when we come out of this thing and we're on the other side, that the better angels in, 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 our, in our nature uh, will triumph. That being said, and going back to your, your talk that you gave um, in Hamburg, what is something you would recommend our listeners? What, what can they do to support a more kind of better outcome at the individual level? What can we do? What can we practice to say, okay, we have this opportunity. Let's not, you know, waste it as we've done with so many opportunities in human history because this is a global pandemic. What can we do at an individual level? And that's an excellent point and an excellent question. And yeah, to end this on a, on a vaguely hopeful, optimistic notes, um, that kind of solidarity and that willingness to help each other and actually do something will be the basis for any meaningful long-term reform and institutional change and, and economic change. Because like, like, any, like anything else, you know, if you use it or lose it, And I think in, in a lot of our societies and communities, we've, we've become a bit, a bit lazy, you know? We, we just assume that the system will take care of itself. I can, I'll do my, my job and go to work and have my life, um, but things like economy or society or democracy, that's far away, that's removed from my own life. And, and those small acts of, of empathy, of helping each other, of solidarity. It's, it's a reminder, like, oh, what I do matters. I have skin in this game. And no, the system and our institutional frameworks don't have all the answers. I need to step up. I need to do something. Because my neighbor needs groceries and she can't go up the stairs without help. So I need to step up. And, and I'm hopeful that people who have made these experiences will keep building and, and using that, that civic muscle um, and that solidarity. And, you know, as I as you brought up the talk, you know, I, I, summar I summarize kind of that, that spirit um, and that sense of personal responsibility, you know, and comparing it with what President Obama said throughout the, the years of his, um, his Senate and, and presidential campaign, this yes, we can, um, this beautiful call to solidarity uh, and change. Uh, it's, it's missing a critical component that we seem to have overlooked. And, and that is that collective change is only possible first if we as individuals are willing and ready to act differently. And, and I call that, yes, I will, instead of yes, we can, and saying that before anything else will change, And before we as a group can, can move mountains, I need to be willing to even just pick up a shovel. And if we 
each in our own daily lives, um, in our interactions with friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, if we aren't willing to put in the, the bit of effort and bit of uh, awareness and if we're not willing to put in that bit of effort and to be aware of how what we do and how we behave toward each other matters, then collectively, of course, you know, we'll stay in these ruts, but each commitment and each action of solidarity, of community building, or at the policy level of practicing strategic empathy and introducing this kind of perspective into your decision-making and your planning and your policy-making, that can indeed move mountains in the long term. But it starts with each of us thinking about our own role in society and our own, uh, our own work in a different way. So it's that civic muscle. I like how you said, use it or lose it. So we should all listen to uh, Jessica's advice and flex that muscle of positivity. I, I like that. I think it's, um, it's a strong thing. It's not easy, um, I'd say, because when it starts with the individual, you need to look deep inside. And sometimes the, the, your toughest opponent is yourself. And change is not easy. And it starts at the individual level means you need to look inside and rock the boat sometimes, which is not easy for all of us. But that being said, thank you so much for your time, Jessica, for joining us on The Global Strain. It's a wonderful sunny afternoon in Berlin and you took the time out to sit with, with, with me here so thank you very much pleasure thanks Joel thank you for listening to the Global Strain podcast my guest today was Jessica Berlin this episode was produced by Sonia Sugurbova with support from Shirmei Chung from the Global Public Policy Institute. This podcast is part of the Global Governance Futures Program, which is generously supported by the Robert Bosch Foundation. You can listen to The Global Strain on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcasting apps. And please do leave us a rating and a review. We would love to hear back from you. For more episodes, opinion pieces, and written interviews, go to ggfutures.net forward slash analysis. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.